0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if you have Bibles, uh, we're in Philippians chapter two this morning, uh, page 980 on, in those black hardcover Bibles uh, is where you can find today's text. There are uh, some cultural phenomenons that I just don't understand. So TikTok, okay, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get it, uh, but I know there's a day coming, and probably in the not so distant future, that I come home, and one or more of my daughters is practicing a dance move in front of a cell phone camera. I just want to tell you right now, that's the day I become Amish. <laughs> that, that's the day that I, that I go off the grid. You won't see me for a while after that. Or uh, how about mullets? How about the cultural phenomenon of mullets? Um, I know fads are cyclical, right? Wallpaper has been out for a long time, and all of a sudden now it's back in. And I know we live in a very divided moment culturally, but friends, how could we not come together and unite and leave the mullet in the rearview mirror of human history? Like, how could we not at least come together for that? And the continued embrace of Christmas carols This is another cultural phenomenon I don't fully understand. Uh, We live in an increasingly post-Christian culture. And yet, Christmas carols are still widely accepted and even appreciated. It's maybe, think about this, it's maybe the one remaining socially acceptable way to broadly proclaim Christianity. Uh, I was in a a coffee shop a couple weeks ago, and, and based on the signage that was up in the coffee shop, based on some of the conversation I was listening to, I'm pretty sure I would not have been welcome in that space to stand up and start preaching, start talking about my faith, start talking about that we're sinful and that we need Jesus to save us. But there was Christmas music on. Blaring over the the speakers that morning was a gospel choir singing about how much we needed Jesus to come into this world and rescue us. I think one of the reasons for this continued embrace of Christmas carols is because many people aren't actually listening. We aren't actually listening. Uh, We're either ignorant, or we're actively suppressing the truths that are contained in these carols. And maybe we like the melodies, we like the tradition that surrounds some of these songs, we like the memories that they stir up. But many of our family members, and our neighbors, and our coworkers, and our friends, Uh, feel no obligation to actually do something with the meaning of these words that we hear so often. So I want to ask you this Advent season, what about you? What about you? Are are you really listening to the words of the Christmas carols? Have you really heard, have you really contemplated the words of these well-known songs? This morning we're going to kick off an Advent sermon series called Christ of the Carols. Uh, A few years back, 2019, we did an initial round of this series. We did six carols back in 2019. This year, we're going to do five more. Uh, And each week, we're going to look at a Christmas carol. We're going to look at the biblical truth or truths that it's grounded in. And then we're going to consider how a deeper knowledge of what we're singing renews and deepens our faith and our wonder at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, uh, we're looking at the song, the Christmas carol, In the Bleak Midwinter. This carol uh, was written in January of 1872, uh, so it's about to turn 151 years old. Uh, It was written by a woman named Christina Georgina Rossetti. And Christina Rossetti uh, was primarily a poet. She wrote a number of poems over the course of her life. uh, But also composed a handful of hymns. This particular Christmas carol, if you've ever tried to sing it, has very irregular meter. Uh, It is not the easiest song by any means in the world to sing. That's actually probably one of the reasons it's not as popular as as some of the others. But it does communicate some really impactful truth about Jesus' incarnation. And, And particularly about the contrast between the glories of heaven that Jesus experienced before he took on flesh and the humility or the humiliation of what he entered into. So let me read the lyrics for us this morning. You can follow along. There's an insert in your bulletin that has the lyrics on one side of it. You can follow along there as I read it. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter, long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, a breastful of milk and a mangerful of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before, the ox and ass and camel, which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there. Cherubim and seraphim thronged the air. But only his mother, in her maiden bliss, worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give him or just give my heart. There are, uh, as you may already be recognizing, a number of biblical texts, biblical truths woven into this carol. But because the main focus of especially those middle three stanzas the main focus is this contrast between Jesus' glory and his incarnation. I think the best place for us to camp out is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-7. through seven. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive into that together. Let me pray. Creator God, you remind us, and you have reminded us this morning already, that the darkness, and our darkness, and our ignorance, and our doubt cannot overcome the light of your life-giving word. So may your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of Scripture that we're about to read, may your Spirit shine your light and once again awaken us to not only the hearing, but the living of this radiant truth. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And this is God's word. Three things uh, for us to consider this morning. Context, contrast, and contribution. Context, contrast, and contribution. So first, let's talk about context. One of the things that you'll start to notice when you pay more attention, closer attention to the lyrics of Christmas carols, is that a decent number of them contain errors or historical inaccuracies. My favorite, as we've talked about before, is Mary, did you know? Because yes, she did. She did. In fact, when she found out, because she did know, she wrote her own song about it. She wrote her own song responding to the fact that she did indeed know uh, it's in Luke chapter 1, okay? So we don't have to keep asking that question. Yes, the answer is yes. Silent night, it wasn't a, there's lots we could do, so let me stay on track. Let me stay on track here. Uh, one of the inaccuracies, though, that make it's, made, make its way into a number of Christmas carols, including this one, is picturing the birth of Jesus in a cold, wintry setting. Uh, the opening stanza here paints such a scene, a bleak, windy snowy season the earth is as hard as iron and water is frozen so hard it's it's like stone that's not the context of Jesus' birth uh, that's not the setting for one thing and i really hope i don't ruin your christmas with this but for one thing we don't really know when jesus was born we don't really know when he was born it probably wasn't december most scholars think but even if it was even if it was december in israel is not the same thing As December in North America. It's a much milder climate in Israel. So the average December temperatures there are between 50 and the low 60s. It it rarely, if ever, falls below 45 degrees in Israel in December. Here's my point Uh, we have a dangerous tendency to read way too much of ourselves and our lives into the Bible. Rather than trying to understand the Bible for what it is and the context in which it was written, We try to force our context into its context. And if this Christmas carol could get the wrong context, think about how much more prone we are to do that today. So since 1872, when this carol was written, Christmas has become infinitely more commercialized. Infinitely more commercialized. The sales, the yard decorations, the sheer amount of money and consumption associated with this holiday. And so if we're not careful, we can start to picture Joseph and Mary strolling into a Bethlehem lined with Christmas lights and lots of lawn inflatables. And when the innkeeper turns Jesus and Mary away from the inn because there's not room for them, we can picture him sitting around a cozy fireplace with a, a giant mug of hot chocolate and listening to Bing Crosby. We all bring assumptions and presuppositions. We all bring our own lenses into our reading of the Bible. And we have to challenge those lenses. We have to challenge those assumptions. We have to always seek to understand the actual context of Scripture and what's really there, not what we want to see there. Now having said that, that doesn't mean that, that this opening stanza of in the bleak midwinter has no value. Because though the weather almost certainly wasn't bleak, the historical circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus certainly were. In Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet describes how people have both walked in darkness and dwelt in a land of darkness. Two statements there. One is a condition of the human heart. People walk in darkness. People choose the darkness instead of the light. The other is a statement about the environment, the surroundings. They dwell in a land of darkness. They're immersed in darkness. And so the context of Jesus' birth might not have been been midwinter, as we think of it in North America, But it was bleak. It was bleak. And it's into this bleakness, into that kind of darkness, the prophet Isaiah says, a child will be born, a son will be given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. But he will not come in the power and pomp of the Mighty God or the prince of peace. He will come as a baby. And that's what the majority of this Christmas carol is, is all about. So second, 2nd let's talk about the contrast. The contrast. Over the centuries, uh, scholars have given some labels to the three stages or states of Jesus' existence. There's glory, humiliation, and exaltation. So glory is Jesus' preexistence. In the beginning, God the Son was already there. John writes in the beginning of his gospel, he was with the Father in the beginning. Jesus, or God the Son, I should say, the preexistent Jesus, was the agent of creation. Through him, all things came into being. There's his humiliation. Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. And his humiliation begins with the incarnation, begins when he enters into this world, but it continues then through his suffering and through his death and through his burial. And then third, exaltation. Exaltation. The Father raised Jesus up from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns over all things. And as we see in the book of Revelation, he has the keys of death and hell. The middle three stanzas of this of this carol in the bleak midwinter highlight the contrast of these different states and specifically the contrast between Jesus' glory and his humiliation. So as we read in the lyrics of the song, heaven and earth cannot hold God. King Solomon prayed a similar prayer when he was dedicating the temple centuries before. God created all things. How could one building hold him? And yet, in Jesus, he confined himself to a human body. The one who made all things entered into the world in a way where a stable and a feeding trough was sufficient to to contain him, to hold him. In glory, Jesus was worshipped night and day. He had angels around him worshipping him all the time. In his humiliation, a little milk and a little bit of hay was all he needed. He traded the surroundings of angels for the surroundings of livestock. And I love animals, but that's a different surrounding. It's a different surrounding. And he traded all the power of archangels and cherubim and seraphim for a simple loving kiss from his mother. Now in Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul is overwhelmed by this same contrast. And he's writing what what most scholars think is probably an early Christian hymn here in Philippians chapter 2. He's writing that. He's overwhelmed by the contrast. Verse 6 is all about Jesus' glory. Jesus was in the form of God. He is the image of the invisible God, Paul writes in Colossians, or the exact imprint of God's nature. And yet, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 6 is about his glory, verse 7 is all about his humiliation. He humbled himself, he emptied himself. For Jesus, that doesn't mean that he gave up any of his divinity, he remained fully God but he willingly gave up exercising all of the the rights and all of the privileges and all of the power that he had in order that he might be born as a fully human man. If we had kept reading in Philippians chapter 2, and it's well worth your time to do so, Paul proceeds to talk about the rest of Jesus' humiliation. That he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And Paul goes on from there then to write about that third state, that third stage, of Jesus' exaltation. It says, Therefore, God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. There is so much to marvel about in Philippians chapter 2. For this morning, in light of what Christina Rossetti wrote 150 years ago, I just want to invite you to really contemplate the contrast between Jesus' glory and Jesus' humiliation. Between the glory of the, the pre-existent Son of God and the incarnate humbled and humiliated Jesus. A couple other things for you to consider. The one who was over time and outside of time entered into time. The one who was omnipresent, could be everywhere and, ever, and anywhere, confined himself to a single body. The one who had all wealth, all riches. We sang about that this morning in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The one who owned everything became poor. Jesus' family was poor. There were many times in his life where he did not have a place to, to lay his head. And when he was crucified, as far as we know, he had a single garment to his name. And then even that was gambled away. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And the one who was omnipotent, the one who had all power over everything, went through the ordinary human processes of learning and growing. Right, think about this. Jesus had to learn how to walk and talk. He spoke the world into existence, and yet in his incarnation, he had to learn, like all of us, how to walk and how to talk. Jesus went through puberty, and the one who created the world should never have to go through that. (laughs) Nobody likes that. Nobody likes going. He went through that. He went through that. Here's something I hadn't really considered Um, recently we the uh, the elders and residents of our church have been reading through a book in recent months called you're only human you're only human Uh, and it's about the goodness of our limits as human beings in other words when God made us and called it all good limits were part of that we are finite he is infinite so our limits as human beings are not a product of the fall they're actually inherently good It's a book by uh, Kelly Capek, if you're interested. It's called You're Only Human. Uh, Something I hadn't really considered, as he talks about the goodness of our limits, he also talks a lot about Jesus' humanity and what it meant that Jesus was fully human. And here's something that Kelly Capek said that I hadn't really considered. Uh, When Jesus walked on the earth, there were almost certainly people smarter than him. People who had a higher IQ, if if they measured such a thing in that day. Uh, There were certainly taller and more beautiful people than him. Isaiah talks about how Jesus wasn't actually a whole lot to look at. There were people in better shape than Jesus. There were better carpenters and woodworkers than Jesus. He he probably made some bad tables, especially as he was learning how to be a carpenter from his earthly father, from Joseph. So think about the humiliation of that. Think about the humiliation of that. When we talk about the old days in our lives, For those of us, I get to do that now. My high school reunion was 20 years ago and I feel like I've entered a new season of life that I can talk about the old days and I have like a a group. Okay, never mind. I'll I'll leave it there. But when we talk about the old days when we were better musicians, we were better athletes, we were in better shape, you know, days where we didn't pull muscles in our sleep. (laughs) We have a phrase for that. Yeah, we have a phrase for that. What's the phrase? We call that those glory days. Glory days. Bruce Springsteen wrote a whole song about it in 1985. They'll pass you by. Glory days. Do you know who had literal glory days? Jesus did. Glory days for Jesus meant something entirely different for him. The literal glory, the majesty and reverence of the eternal worship of heaven, the eternal worship of all that he created. Imagine going from that to a manger. Going from that to a life of poverty. We don't even give attention to most poor people. We know we walk right by them. Imagine that for Jesus. Imagine being the agent of creation and then watching one of your created image bearers, one of your created beings build a better table than you. I was talking with our our church planning resident, Greg, this week. We were talking about this book uh, on Monday. And he said in the course of that discussion, he thinks that he could have beaten Jesus in basketball. Now, Steve King, uh, Steve King, I believe that, okay? Steve King is about 6'5". He's a tall Dutch fellow. He played basketball in college. Steve could probably take Jesus. Jesus was probably my height uh, or shorter, or shorter. Uh, Anthony, Anthony, our pastoral resident, if you were at the men's retreat, you got to hear him tell a story about the only time he ever heard people chanting his name was on the basketball court. I think Anthony maybe could have taken, taken Jesus. But Greg... Imagine losing to the guy who thought Michael Jordan played football. I don't know if we actually had to answer that question. He On the B-Side podcast a couple weeks ago, he said he was joking. He knows, he knows Michael Jordan plays basketball. But in the dictionary, next to the word humiliation, there would be a picture of that. There would be a picture of Jesus losing in basketball to Greg. Jesus had literal glory days. Literal glory days. But he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And friends, he did that for you. He did that for you, for us. This was not so that Jesus could have a new and different experience. This wasn't so Jesus could just get an idea of what it was like to be a human being, to be one of the the little guys. This wasn't some kind of cosmic edition of undercover boss. Okay, Jesus' humiliation is our salvation. So contemplate this contrast. Marvel At this contrast, let it grow your appreciation and your awe at just how deep God's love is for you. He emptied himself. He became poor so that you, by his poverty, might receive the riches of God's eternal kingdom. So context, contrast. Third and finally, let's talk about our contribution. Our contribution. The fifth and final stanza of In the Bleak Midwinter is all about our contribution. And Christina Rossetti is pondering there in those words, what can we possibly give to Jesus in return for this? In return for his humiliation, for the salvation that he accomplished through his humiliation. And the answer is nothing and everything. Nothing and everything. What can you give Jesus in return for this? Nothing. Nothing. There is not one thing you can do to earn or deserve or merit or pay Jesus back for this. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is not by works. It is not by our good deeds. It is all grace. We cannot work our way back into that glory that he experienced before he entered into this world. Even if you were a shepherd and had a lamb, Even if you were a wise man and had gold or frankincense or myrrh, Jesus himself would say, Hebrews chapter 10, it's not sacrifices or offerings that God desires. It's not burnt offerings and sin offerings. There is nothing you can do to earn or deserve this. But there is something you can give in response. In fact, there's something you must give in response. And it's not just something, it is everything. It's your heart. It's the very center of your being. It's your whole self. And that's why King David can write in places like Psalm 51, God, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise or why the Apostle Paul can write in Romans chapter 12 that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And he says there it's in response, it's because of the mercies of God. In response to what Jesus has done, we give our whole selves. So we give nothing to earn, we give everything in response. Church, as we now are beginning our celebration of Advent, what I hope you see is just how worth it it is to offer everything you are in response to what Jesus has done. It's Jesus and not us who had everything to lose in his incarnation. It's Jesus and not us who had real glory days. The best of our quote-unquote glory days are ashes compared to the beauty of life in God's kingdom. Right? What, what are you actually losing when you give that up and follow him? the best of whatever we would call our glory days is rubbish compared to the treasure of being found in him. Because Jesus was willing to give up the glory of heaven and humble himself to a fully human life because through his incarnation, through his salvation, you and I are never for a moment without hope no matter how bleak our circumstances are in this world. May you give nothing to pay him back. May you give everything in response. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus Christ, King of glory, you are God. You are powerful. You rule and reign over all things. And so we pause and we praise you this morning for your greatness. But you became a baby, a fully human man. You were tiny and weak. You had to learn how to walk and talk like us. You became just as we are. And we praise you because you came and because your humiliation is our salvation. We long for the day that you will come again in all your glory, in all of your exaltation and complete the work that you have begun. So thank you for coming and come soon, Lord Jesus. We pray all this in your name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.